Hello and welcome to the free edition of QAV. This is episode 451. On this week's show, we're talking about MYR and LAU warnings replacing GAP with GWR, CAA's upgrade to guidance, trading views, commodity alerts, our stocks of the week, which are FEX and GMA, our best portfolio stocks for last week, why the world's second tallest building could be a warning sign about the peak of the economy, and CGF's business model. If you're brand new to the show, my name's Cameron Riley. I talk with my friend Tony Kynaston, who's a very successful private investor, been at it for 30 years. He has a, a system that we use. It's a checklist that he developed a long time ago. It's called QAV, which stands for Quality Add Value. How do you find good quality companies that uh, where the share price is currently undervalued, and then we buy those, and we, you know that's basically it. There's a lot of other stuff to it, but uh, that's the that's the essence of it. So that's uh, if you hear us talk about things like the checklist or QAV scores and that kind of stuff, that's what it relates to. Don't worry about it; you'll pick it up over time. There's a bunch of free episodes. Uh, we put out a free episode every week. There's also a premium series where we go into a lot more detail, but you can learn more about that later. Without any further ado, let's get into the show. Welcome to QAV episode 451 TK. Are you in a, uh, what do you call a, a bird aquarium? There's a name for it. An aviary. Aviary, that's it? <laughs> oh, I kind of am. And I'm looking out the window. There's this beautiful little sparrow with a big red breast just flew into a tree and out again. It's lovely. You're in uh, the middle of the bush, Cape Shank. Yep, beautiful down here. How's Omicron in Cape Shank? Well, we I missed it by about 10 minutes last week, so... Missed it by that much! Yeah, so we were at the... Played golf down here and there was someone in the clubhouse. I think it was from 10 past 1 till 10 past 5 they were in and out. And we left the clubhouse at about 1 o'clock to go and play and we got back in about 20 to 5, so we just missed them. Not to say we would have caught it if we were there at the same time, but um, we probably would have had to have, you know, test and wait for results and stuff, so we were lucky. And just hoping they didn't cough on a golf club that you then picked up or something or a cart. Well, I have my own golf clubs, yeah, but a table or something, yeah, for sure. I bought the PCR home test now, so I tested myself before I went to a Christmas party on the weekend and I was fine and I'll do it again before Christmas Day and I meet up with family, so yeah. Did you see Brian May's story? No, the guy from Queen, the guitarist from Queen. Yeah, he posted a video on Instagram or something this week. He said, my wife and I have lived like hermits for the last two years and there was a birthday party for a friend and they were there with about a dozen people. All of them were triple jabbed, he said. Great night. A couple of days later, a couple of them said they had symptoms. He said he and his wife had symptoms and it was just like a bit of a tickle and a bit of a cough. So they got the tests, tested negative. Then they did another test the next day, tested negative. And then they found out that about eight of their friends that were there had tested positive and they tested on the third day and they tested positive on the third day. And he said the first two days just knocked him out like the worst flu you could possibly imagine, completely flattened him. And then starting day three, day four, he started to pick up and we did the video. He said it had been a week and he was feeling pretty good, but he said it even triple jabbed completely. He's 74, but he said completely knocked him off his feet for a couple of days yeah yeah i'm not looking forward to it it's going to hit us i think at some stage because it's just growing so quickly spreading so quickly he said a very very close friend of his died last year from covid not in six days boom gone and uh 
he said, if I wasn't vaccinated, I'm pretty sure this would have probably killed me as well. You know, it was that bad triple dose. Yeah. And I'm assuming that was Omicron too, right? I mean, I don't know. It's the dominant variant everywhere now. I assume it is in the UK as well. Might have been another one, but we keep hearing that it's mild. And he was like, man, this one knocked me out. Yeah, it's not mild. <laughs> I mean, it may not have the same death rate, but it's still killing people. There was, what was it, six deaths last night in Victoria? Something like that from, uh, I guess, Delta and Omicron, but yeah. Yeah, I don't. I haven't seen any data yet on the deaths, whether they're Delta or Omicron, but I did see that it's now the dominant strain in Australia, Omicron, by cases, and it is in the US too. Yeah, so I, well, I think what they're saying is that same number of hospitalizations, so less people are going to hospital because of it, but it's more virulent. I was going to stay down here longer. I'm going to head back to um, Sydney next week and hunker down until I can get my third jab, which isn't due until at the earliest mid-January, but they're talking about delays anyway, so. Oh, really? Yeah, so if I can get my third jab mid-January, I'll come back down here for a couple of weeks after that. But I don't know if we should be hosting dinners or anything like that at the moment with Omicron. No. And I'm not due for my booster until February, I think, so... Well, I should also bring them forward. I mean, Britain's now down to, is it three months in Britain or four months in Britain between shots? I read today that the states are pushing the Commonwealth to make it earlier. Anyway, enough of that. Let's get on to investing. It's been turbulent, continues to be turbulent. Market is not happy. Just looking at the all odds uh, for today, it's slightly up today. But if you look at the last three months, uh, I guess, you know, mid-November, we hit 7.798, the all odds. It's currently down at 7.638. So it's, uh, I don't know, 150 points down from where it was six weeks ago. Yeah, it's going sideways, which it does in times of uncertainty, right? No one can work out what's happening with inflation, what's happening with bond yields, what's happening with Omicron. All those things are still trying to get worked out. They've been thrown in the punch bowl and, or thrown in the, the soup, and then someone's trying to divine what's going to happen from, from here. It's pretty hard. Peaked at 7902 back at uh, sort of the end of August or mid-August by the looks of it, yeah. But it's been travelling down and sideways, as you say, ever since. Yeah, and look, this is usually a quiet time as well, so there probably isn't much volume in the market, so it gets moved around a little bit with a heavy trade at the moment. Anyway, let's get into news and then we'll get into questions. I noticed in doing our checklist this week that uh, MYR was getting close to its sell line. I peg its sell line at about 37 cents. Spread later says 38. I mean, the thing about Meyer is that it's never good seeing a retailer have their stock price decline during the Christmas season. No, it's 43.5 cents at the moment, being the 21st of December in the afternoon. So it's still a little bit above its sell line, but it's never good seeing a retail decline during Christmas. It means that something's leaking, that sales aren't where they should be, I would guess. But um, who knows? We'll still apply our normal rules. It's had a massive run, though, for the last six months. Like, it's still up, I think, 30% from when I bought it six months ago. So is it maybe some profit-taking thrown in as well? Absolutely. If you look at the graph, the monthly graph, and or even the the shorter term graph in Stock Doctor, it's sort of coming out of COVID, it had a, I don't know, maybe a 30% sort of degree or 30 degree slope on it. And it, then um, back in June, it sort of shot up really sharply and now it's coming back towards that 30 degree slope again. So yeah, it, it had a good run there. And it's just, re, as you say, probably because of profit taking, retracing some of those steps up. 
Solly giveth and Solly taketh away. <laughs> well, he wants the share price to go up too. It's, I think it was Jeff Wilson that caused it to sell off yeah, in the first place. Jeff Wilson. With um, Wilson Asset Management selling down their shareholding. So um, they could still be selling. Who knows? We don't change the rules though. We just apply them. Another one that I noticed is dropping. And the reason I noticed these two is because I own them, of course. Lindsay Transport, LAU, I think also getting close to its sell line, which I also peg at around about 38 cents. Yeah, again, the bread loader has 36, so it's pretty similar. Right. I was just eyeballing it on the chart. I didn't throw it into the calculator, I think. So keep an eye on those two. If you have them, folks, make sure you've got your alerts set, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So one more. Did you own WWG at some stage or still own WWG, Wiseway Group? At some stage I did, yeah. Okay. Thought you might. Anyway, it came off my buy list this week when I was doing it on the weekend. Just sort of raise it in case you do own it. And then the other major change to the buy list when I was going through it was um, HSL, Helios, is back on the buy list towards the bottom again. I think it's got a, a score of 0.11, but it's a large cap stock of people are interested in those. Good old Helios. The other change to the buy list is Gap is in the buy list and should not be in the buy list and shouldn't have been in the buy list for the last couple of weeks when it has been in the buy list. Mia Culpa, I gave it a pass and I shouldn't have. It's well below its buy line. I don't know what I was drinking or not drinking is probably the problem. So please don't buy Gap. Uh, we've just sold it out of our Nevexa portfolio, the QAV portfolio today, and replaced it with GWR. It had also dropped a bit since we bought it as well. So there you go. But yeah, we replaced it with GWR today. So apologies to everyone for that, which is why I say every week, check my work before you do anything. Yeah. Do your own research. Yeah. Which I'm pretty sure people are doing, judging by the questions we get, which is good. The crazy thing is, as people probably know, you do a checklist each week. Alex does one. I do one. Then I compare all three and decide what the final right version is because each of us makes mistakes every week. Each one of us makes mistakes and because it's human error when you're dealing with hundreds and hundreds of stocks and data and charts and whatever. And even then I still screw it up sometimes at the end with the final list. So uh, yeah, a couple of other things. CAA did an upgrade to guidance this week. Thanks to Jeremy for pointing that out via Facebook. That's always nice, particularly in this kind of a market when somebody does an upgrade to their guidance. My four favourite words, upgrade to financial year guidance. It's just set four, five, five, five favourite words. Up, up year, uh, sorry, upgrade to full year guidance. <laughs> I thought it was hole in one. Oh, that's three words. <laughs> I've never had a hole in one. I'd love one. Oh, your horse just wins the Melbourne Cup. <laughs> so uh did you drill down into this is capral caa no it's great to see capral upgraded yeah and their their chart looks like crazy it's one of these ones that you know sometimes people say to us well you know the chart's gone up so much you should sell and you know it it, it i think we bought it around away three or four bucks it just keeps going it's up now it it was it went up to 835 and then dropped for a couple of months down to 767 this gets back to somebody asked us last week should we sell any stock if it drops 10% at any stage should we then sell it and you were like no and this is a classic one capral's then jumped from that 767 up to $9.19 it is today 
It is. And I remember looking at the aluminium price on the weekend. It's it's not too far above its sell line. So that's interesting that Caprell's going up. There's other things at play, obviously, than the aluminium price. Yeah, right. I think I posted on Facebook uh, when somebody mentioned, Jeremy mentioned this, that it's gone up. Oh, it's up 70%, I think, since we bought it. No, 85.87% now, total return. Capital gain, 70%, but it must have thrown some dividends or something at us as well. 85.87% since we bought it. So, yeah, it's been a terrific gainer for us. It has, hasn't it? Yep. And uh, that would have been, what, in the space of about a year, I think. I think we bought it last year sometime. Uh, we bought it, yes, October 2020. That's pretty good. Yeah, at 17 cents, but they had a consolidation in uh, November and a couple of huge dividends along the way as well. Okay. I'm just calling up aluminium. It's actually just touching its sell line now, so we'll see what happens. Or maybe just slightly above it. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we might have to dump Capral next week. Yeah, we might. Well, it's a bit hard. Stock Doctor doesn't have the sort of fine resolution to be exact, but it looks like the sell price for aluminium is going to be about 2570 which I guess is, I don't know what that unit is, dollars per tonne maybe. And the current price is 2645 so it's you know, 100 points. Well, actually, no, 50 points above the sell price. Well, that leads me to my next talking point, which is Glenn in our Facebook group said that he found out, uh, based on something you asked people to research last week, how do we set alerts for commodities? He said TradingView, the app, We'll let you do that if you pay for one of their memberships. I think it's about 15 bucks USD a month for a membership for the base level subscription, and you can set commodity alerts. So uh, I've set them for a few, platinum, iron ore, gold, and I will go in now and set it for aluminium. And this being an American site, they probably spell it wrong. Aluminum. Aluminum. Ah, right. Yeah, they spell it that way, but they pronounce it aluminum. So which futures should I be looking at? Well, I'm using physical, aluminium XAL underscore. I don't think they um, use the same codes. Yeah, there's no nothing matching XAL underscore. Well, they have a lot of aluminium. They have Manaxia aluminium, Wisdom Tree aluminium. I don't know if these are companies or commodities. I can look at... Uh, yeah, they just have futures. Oh, well, I'll just use a future one then. Yeah, use the shortest term future one if you can. Oh, well, it looks – is, is that byline you looked at really steep? Because this is a really steep graph. It's pretty steep, yeah. It's been going up since the COVID cough, since April 2020, when it was as low as Are you 1461, and it got as high as 2851 right. in September. Are you fudging the sell line for this? Not at all, no. I've got um, L1 May 2020 at 15.15 and then L2 at September 2020 at 17.37. Well, I've I've got an earlier buy line, a sell trough on the one I'm looking at back from July 17. And then I run it through L2 in May 2020 and it comes in quite low. July 17. Hmm. Again, this is aluminium futures. I'm... Yeah, I don't know. Sorry, I don't know trading trading view. Yeah, we'll play around with this and we'll, we'll come up with an alert for that. All right, well, that's all of my news uh, items to get through this week. Tony, what have you got to talk about? 
Not a whole lot. Just wanted to, of course, wish everyone season's greetings for the holiday season and hope everyone stays away from Omicron and has a happy and safe holiday. And and thanks to all, all our subscribers. You're very valued. And thanks to our listeners. You're very valued too. And for all the people who give us questions and support on the Facebook group, it's, it's very welcome. It's great. So season's greetings, everyone. I've got a, a couple of things to go through. I've got... Um, our Novex portfolio was up 0.95% for the week, and the biggest mover was Capital that we spoke about, up 13.4%. Gap was our worst performer, down 6%, but we've um, removed that today from the portfolio. A couple of other things. The I did post something on Facebook last night. The world's second tallest apartment building is being built in Malaysia at the moment. And I know about six months ago, I talked about Colin Nicholson's top of the market indicators and one of his indicators that's always stuck in my mind is when someone builds the world's tallest building, it's definitely a sign that the market's very toppy. So uh, the second tallest apartment building might be telling us it's getting toppy as well. That's why you posted that. I thought, yeah. what's that got to do with anything? I think, I think I thought you'd posted it mistakenly or something to the forum. I see. That makes sense now. Yeah, Colin Nicholson, I don't think his website's still going. Well, his site might be still going, but his services and believes to subscribe to it. And he had used to publish three papers on indicators for different stages in the market. And, um, yeah, there were stages in the bull market with high levels of IPOs, merger and acquisition activity, and uh, people start building icons to themselves. I guess you could probably count the, the blue penis as one of those uh, <laughs> spaceships to yourselves. Maybe that's the tallest thing in the world at the moment. Sorry, what? The blue penis? What? Yeah, the spaceship that uh, Jeff Bezos built and rode up in was nicknamed the blue penis. You didn't see that? Really? No, I, I, <laughs> I missed that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, edifices to uh, rich people is a sign of the top of the market. There's a, an image I won't get out of my head for the rest of the day now. <laughs> yeah, riding inside the blue penis. Anyway. It's a sign the market's getting toppy, but I guess we know that because it's getting choppy and we'll, we'll have to let it resolve itself. It doesn't change what we do, but just uh, sometimes it's nice to know context for what's going on. What about stocks of the week? FMA, no, sorry, FEX and GMA this week. Yes, so I'm going to focus on GMA, Gemworth, mortgage insurance, and we have a question about it later, which I'll, I guess I'll better talk about up front. So first of all, Gemworth Mortgage Insurance, been around for a long time, was an international company with a, an office in Australia. And uh, earlier this year or end of last year, completed a sell down. So it's now wholly owned by uh, Australians and listed on the ASX. So um, it's been around for a long time. It's one of the main providers of mortgage insurance. So it's, it's a one product company, which can be a problem if something goes wrong with that one product. But uh, but it's been fairly profitable over the years. It wasn't profitable during COVID, so it made a loss last year. And oftentimes the losses with a company like this being an insurance company are around provisioning. So it might have to mark to market a change in how much it's providing in case there are losses, which it did last year. And then that gets written back this year, a bit like what the banks do for providing for doubtful debts when they um, lend people mortgages. So its first half back in profitability happened this last uh, results in June. What else can I say about it? If people don't know what mortgage insurance is, it's if you're going to take out a mortgage from a bank and the bank says you must have 
or sorry, no more than 80% borrowing, so a 20% deposit, you can actually reduce that deposit by paying for mortgage insurance. And it's something I've done in the past when I was first starting off in the real estate sector. I took out mortgage insurance, which meant I could actually borrow 90% from the bank. And uh, I paid a couple of grand to someone like Gemworth to uh, ensure the fact that if I didn't meet repayments, then Gemworth would pick them up for me if I ever went um, into foreclosure. So that's what that is. It's been doing it for a long time. I guess a couple of things to note, it's basically a white label supplier. So and when I took it out many years ago, it was offered by the bank I was borrowing from, even though it was provided by probably a company like Gemworth. I guess that's still happening these days. doesn't matter either way, I suppose. But the banks have just started um, putting these contracts out to tender. So I think it was last year, at the start of last year, National Australia Bank put out to tender their mortgage insurance provider's contract and Gemworth lost it and QBE picked it up. And there were only two people in that tender, so it's a fairly niche market. And then the Commonwealth Bank earlier this year announced that they would run a tender when their current contract was nearing completion. So the current contract, which is held by Gemworth, doesn't come up or, or keeps running until December 2022, but um, the Commonwealth Bank will run that tender process well before that time period to allow them to transition away if they, if they need to. My guess is, again, there'll probably be a very small number of people applying for that tender, and who knows whether Gemworth will get it or not. The material factor is that ComBank is, is about half of Gemworth's insurance business. So if they lose this tender, it'll be a big hit to their profits. And likewise, if they're desperate to keep it, which you think they would be if, they, if it's worth that much to them, they may have to shave their margins right down to the bare bone. So it, it could be a hit to future earnings as well. So that's a couple of things to keep in mind with it. We should know the results of that tender well before the end of 2022. I think it may even be underway now. So this trade isn't without risk, and that's one of the reasons why it comes onto our buy list as a value play. But it's there now. It's just come on above its buy line in the last week or so. So it's a, it's a new three-point uptrend. And to go through the, the numbers, sorry, before I do that, a few other points to make. The price graph has slowly been increasing since the COVID cough, and it's taken another leg up recently. And the leg up it's taken recently is probably because they've announced a, an on-market buyback and they plan to spend about 10% of capital buying back their own shares. So management are giving us a vote of confidence in the company, even though it's, there's a fair bit of uncertainty around it. The late, latest profits have been um, helped by the housing market, which uh, before COVID happened, some people said was going to tank, but in fact, the reverse happened shows you how good some economists are at forecasting. And so there's been a lot of um, business for them and people taking out mortgage insurance. And as it gets, as house prices rise and it gets harder to save for a deposit, more people tend to take out mortgage insurance and do what I did, take out a, an insurance policy and, and then the bank will lend you more. So you have to save for a smaller deposit, which is a worthwhile thing to do if you're considering buying into the market uh, and you can afford to do that. The other thing which has uh, helped has been a, a tailwind for this company is that because of COVID and the lockdowns, the banks were, were told not to foreclose on people who couldn't pay their mortgages. And they actually had programs where you could take, I think it was up to six months off your mortgage repayments. And so that meant that the number of claims on mortgage insurance went down because of that. And also because of all the government support that was being handed out to people, the unemployment rate's pretty low. So 
there's been less claims and more activity coming in through the front door for Genworth. So it's been a good period for them. So that was one of the reasons why the company's turned around with its share price. So anyway, so that's, that's by the by, that's the background, but the numbers are, and I'm doing this with a stock price of $2.36, which was at the weekend, 19th of the December, 2021. One of the reasons why I picked this one to do it, it's high up on the buy list, but it also has an average daily trade of just under $2 million, about 1.8 million. So it should suit most investors. The price currently is below its consensus target price. It's about 71% below its consensus target price. So it scores for that. The financial health and stock doctor is strong and also recovering. And again, because it was at a loss last year and it's, it's now profitable. And I tend to like companies which are doing that. So it scores a two on the checklist for that. If anyone's interested in the ROE, it's low. It's, it's um, about 3%. I'm not particularly worried about ROE, but I know some people focus on it. I guess that's a reflection of the industry. It's in the insurance industry where a lot of the returns are fairly skinny on skinny margins, but over a large volume. And it's got to do with um, reinsurance pricing for the risk they take, et cetera, et cetera. So low ROE, that's not unusual for this industry though. Because of all the risks involved, price to cash flow is down to 2.5 times. So that's very low for us. Interestingly enough, the PE is up at 23 times. So that says to me, again, this is a company which is bringing in lots of cash, but then obviously losing all of that cash to costs along the way. So that's uh, just, again, the nature of the insurance industry, I guess. IV1, it's greater than IV1. It's less than IV2 and it's less than two. IV2 is greater than two times the share price. So we scored a two for that reason. It's actually, the share price is currently less than NEPS. It's the net equity per share. And so it scores a point for that. It's also less than NEPS plus 30%. So it scores another point for that, obviously, if it's less than NEPS. Uh, there's strong growth forecast in earnings per share. And I guess you've got to be careful with this because if it does lose the contract, that will, that will still reduce. But the, the forecast growth is really high. So even if it does lose ComBank, we'll probably still see some growth in the EPS next year. Growth over PE, which is what we look at, is 14 times. Uh, and we're looking for something to be 1.5 times on that metric. So it's well and truly above our threshold hurdle for that. So it scores a two. As I said before, it's a new uptrend. So it scores a one for that. It is a record high PE. So it gets a minus one for that. And I said before, the PE is 23. So that's, that's quite high. And it doesn't have consistently increasing equity. Not surprising if it had a loss last year. So it doesn't score for that. All in all, I get a quality score of 80% and a QAV score of 0.32. So something to have a look at, certainly high up on the buy list, but certainly not without its risks. When you talk about the risk of it losing Commonwealth Bank's business, but then you know, you're talking about the analysts have given it strong growth forecasts, you would assume that these analysts have a sense for what's going on in this space? Yeah, look, I, I don't know what these analysts are thinking and I don't know what guidance they've been given by the company. The company may well have given guidance and then said, you know, asterisk, assuming we retain all these contracts. But oftentimes an analyst, if they're worth their salt, will say, well, there's a X percentage that doesn't, you know, they'll work out what the percentages are. They'll say 50% probability that they keep the ComBank contract. And therefore, we'll apply that to the earnings forecast and you know, we'll come out with our number. But it looks to me like they're forecasting a high number. And um, if they lose the combat contract, they'll still get some growth out of their, um, their future forecast. 
Right. And shout out to my old friend, Gerd Schenkel, who I see was appointed a non-executive director of GMA in November 2021. Okay, well, give him a call and ask him what's happening with the RFP. I was going to do that. I was going to say, yeah, we could get him on the show to talk about it. Just tell us what's going on. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> He'll have to say, no comment, no comment, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah. Gerd used to sponsor my podcasts uh, oh. 11 or 12 years ago when he was uh, he was running. He was one of the founders of something called U-Bank, one of the first sort of new generation bank things. He used to sponsor my booze budget, actually, for my podcasts. Good guy. Nice guy. I know, I know who you're talking about now. Yeah. Right. Well, shout out to Gerd if he's listening. Exactly. All right. Well, thanks for that breakdown, Tony. Should we get into questions? Absolutely, yeah. First one is from good old Dave from Newey. He says, G'day, Cam. Challenger Limited, CGF. In the interest of disclosure, I was a holder, but sold on on a rule 0.2. I'm not sure what rule 0.2 is, but uh, okay. It went up 10% from where I bought it, in which case I was set to sell on break even as it pulled back. It lost a couple of percent below that on the open. Anyhow, I'm out for the time being. But I get more announcements for CGF than most holdings. A lot of these relate to substantial holdings CGF has in other listed stocks. A lot of these are not what you'd call QAV worthy. I did some digging in the annual report to try to work out what percentage of revenue and equity assets is tied up in these holdings, but the thing is a friggin' doorstop. And presumably CGF has costs associated with managing the holdings, internal and external retail partners, question mark. Not expecting Tony to dissect the annual, but I'd be interested in his general thoughts on how this sort of a setup is different to just directing some dollars to a managed fund. I get the model is partly Berkshire, but you'd back whatever Buffett is spending his float cash on compared to some of the holdings that have popped up for CGF. Not down-ramping, just keen to understand the model for a business of this nature. It's outside my wheelhouse. Thanks, Dave from Newey. Yeah, good good question, Dave. And I don't know what rule point two is either. <laughs> I think it, what he means is it went up and he sold it when it came back down to break even perhaps. But anyway, look, I, I actually really like Challenger. I've owned it in the past. And it's an interesting business model. If I go back to when it first started, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, maybe a bit longer, what the founder set out to do was to invest in real estate and then provide the people who gave him the money to invest with a guaranteed return every year. So that's what is called an annuity. And that's what Challenger does in the main part. And uh, that was successful at doing that for a while. There was a retail downturn during the GFC and there were lots of questions about whether the model was broken and all that kind of stuff. And it's also a very highly regulated business for that reason, because it involves lots of forecasting on returns for their investments and, and then whether they can meet their obligations to pay the annuity. So for example, my father had an annuity and basically when he retired, he went to challenger and paid them whatever it was i let's say it was a hundred grand and they guaranteed to pay him seven grand for the rest of his life that's the way the product works so there's a lot of actuarials going on there to decide how long he might live for and then forecasting and projecting as to what they can get as a return from taking his hundred grand and investing it in either real estate and more recently in the share market and that's what dave's talking about so 
along the way, I think it was post-GFC because of ruptures in the in the real estate market, they started to diversify a bit and started to invest in the share market. They knew it was going to be more risky than property, but they also expected to get higher returns. And so uh, they were doing that as a way to try and um, beef up their, to bolster their investments so that they could guarantee the annuities, but also, I guess, to make a bigger margin. If you're still offering, you know, whatever they're offering now, I don't know what they're offering now, 6% maybe, to people guaranteed for life, then you'll get part of that will be higher from the share market if you're investing wisely compared to the property market, but the property market is usually less risky. So they've been fiddling with the blend now for a while, and that's that's attracted some criticism and made it a little bit controversial. And they also, a couple of years ago, downgraded what they projected that their returns would be from their investment portfolios, which again, made the share price slide. Uh, but some people are also saying that their projected returns are much more realistic now. So it's not a funds management company, Dave, it's more like a twist on banking. So what they're doing is taking people's deposits, investing those, and then managing to get a better return than what they pay back to the customers and annuity. Um, there's probably a little bit more risk there because they take the money up front and they've got to guarantee it for either for life or for a period of time. So sometimes I'll say the annuity lasts for 10 years or 20 years or whatever, and, and the person, take the retiree taking out the annuity can decide whether they're going to live that long or whether they care. And they'll, they're happy to go into the pension, for example, at the end of that period. But that's the game they're in. And I think why I like it is because I'm old enough to have been working corporate back in the 80s when most of the pension or most of the superannuation plans were changed from defined benefit to what they are now, which is basically an investment style account. So in the past with defined benefit superannuation, if you, when you retired, you basically got a percentage of your finishing salary. And, and I guess more often than not, it was like the average of the last three years that you worked. And you might've gotten as high as 60 or 70% of that salary. So they were very generous and all the risk was absorbed by the superannuation fund, much in the same style as Challenger is absorbing risk. They're saying, I've had your, all your money for a long time and I've invested it wisely and it's grown to a large amount so that I can guarantee your retirement based on your age and based on the last three years of your salary, et cetera, et cetera. Companies moved away from that to make all the, to pass all that risk back on to the superannuants themselves. And so if you're retiring from a big corporate, you get, you'll get given a lump sum. You can go into a pension phase, I guess, but it largely depends on how you want to invest the money, whether that be with superannuation funds that you trust, like industry funds, for example, or whether you want to do it yourself. So the risk has gone back onto the person. Someone like my father, who was a, basically a chippy for most of his life, didn't have the first knowledge of how to invest. And I, I could see that when he finally showed me his, um, his retirement profile. But an annuity suited him because he had the guarantee of an income, even though you know, he paid his lump sum up front to get guaranteed return. So challenges in that business. In terms of the split of the, the managed funds versus the, um, the other investments, if you look at the front page of Stock Doctor Dave, you'll see that the funds management side of Challenger is now 15%. So it's by no means the predominant part of Challenger. And I think what's happened in the last uh, little while is that Challenger, when it started to branch out and invest for itself in the share market, decided that that was also an offering that they could offer to retail investors. And so they've turned what was in-house investments into also um, an externally offered investment program so or product. 
So I guess if that ever grew to be a, a, the dominant part of Challenger, it would change the type of business it is. And I would treat it more like a listed investment company or a fund manager and probably take it off the buy list. But for now, it's not. It's, it's more in the sort of banking mode of things with a twist that they provide annuities. So that's what I know about Challenger. It can be controversial because, you know, if the share market turns down, all the analysts will focus on, on management and ask them if they can still provide the annuities. That can be good or bad. But over the time frame it's been operating, which is I think about 15, 20, maybe even 25 years, as far as I know, it's never missed um, any annuity payments. So it's been well managed and I would expect that to continue. Fascinating. A bank with a twist. Banking with a twist. I like that. You should be in marketing, Tony. <laughs> it's also, I mean, something that I was thinking about uh, in terms of if we ever have a fund offering for, for people that if we can get 19.5% in the market, how much do we have to give back to someone who wants a guaranteed return for the rest of their life? You know, generally people these days are looking for about 7%. Mm-hmm. If you can guarantee that for them and, and the rest is not just profit for us, but a buffer in, in case we have a market downturn for a couple of years, it's actually not a bad business model. You could guarantee them 8%, but if we have a good year, give them 10% and say, here, Merry Christmas. We had a good year. <laughs> yeah, you could. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the end of the free episode for this week. Uh, we did uh, another half an hour or 40 minutes, I think, on the show for the premium episode where we also talk about selling and buying back into FMG instead of just holding it for the duration. MFG's collapse and what their management might be thinking about right now and more details about the story Tony mentioned last week about uh, how he had a, made a 20 times return on MND Mondefilis uh, back in the days like 10 years ago somebody asked a question about that story um, but that's if you're interested in listening to the premium episodes the club edition you can there's a free trial on our website two weeks free trial just go up to qavpodcast.com.au Sign up, check it out. You also get access to the checklist, uh, the getting started guide, the videos. Uh, you get access to our full buy list each, each week, our dinners around the country when we do them or our Zoom calls when we can't. Um, a whole bunch of benefits for being a club member. And the community, the private Facebook group where all of our hundreds of uh, QAV club members are where we share ideas and, and analysis and that kind of stuff every day. Uh, so you can check that out. As I said, qavpodcast.com.au or just keep listening to the free episodes. If you're not ready to do that, that's fine as well. All right, we'll be back next week. If you uh, are traveling over the festive season, please stay safe. Uh, good luck with your investing. The market's choppy, but uh, just ride it out. And we'll be back next time. Take care. Bye. The QAV Podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129217182. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions.